Should Christians dye their hair? Should Christians dye their hair? I'll be taking an in-depth biblical look at this topic. And I want to go ahead and give recognition to my my friend, Reverend Joe Campitella, for his vital contribution to this topic. He co-wrote the original article at RyanAFrench.com called, Should Christians Dye Their Hair? Please go find that link and read it if you can. Also, I'm featuring a double header of poetry, one of the always interesting G.K. Chesterton poems entitled The Nativity, and another one by Deborah Ann titled Every Hair by Number. This is going to be a great episode. So let's get going. I realize many people have never even paused to consider the possibility that God might care about any aspect of our outward appearance. Others understand that God does mandate a certain criteria of outward holiness disciplines. Most sincere Christians have at least some level of awareness that God requires us to be modest, maintain gender distinctions, and avoid vanity in our attire, at least to a certain level. Among apostolics, there are certainly many disagreements regarding how those standards should be applied orthopraxically, but they're generally acknowledged to be orthodoxically sound beliefs. Orthopraxy, meaning uh, how our doctrine uh, is applied in our lives outwardly, and orthodoxy, meaning uh, what our actual beliefs are. And of course, uh, there's always some level of difference between what we believe and how we live. We've all known someone, for example, who believed that you shouldn't lie, and yet they still lie. Uh, This would be someone who has sound orthodoxy, but doesn't have sound orthopraxy. And we see this in in many churches, people who have good orthodoxy, but orthopraxically, it doesn't play out correctly. And uh, and I want to look at the subject of hair dye orthodoxically, and then hopefully it'll, it'll play out in our lives the way it should. Many generations ago, hair dye was frowned upon and and even outright forbidden across denominational lines. There was an almost ecumenical Christian stance against the practice of changing hair color. But like many standards over time, most denominations and religious affiliations softened or outright reversed their stance on the issue of hair dye. I grew up in a holiness setting that strictly opposed the use of hair dye. I never had the slightest interest in dyeing my own hair and and really didn't think much about the issue at all, even though I grew up in the 90s when guys were obsessed with bleaching their hair. And of course, I remember growing up in the youth group and uh, people would uh, come in and their hair would be bleach blonde and you'd say, hey, what happened? They'd say, oh, I I didn't dye it. I I went swimming and, you know, my hair came out this color. I just grew up in that generation. I vaguely remember being mildly surprised as a teenager when I realized there's no Bible verse that says, thou shalt not dye thy hair. But even with my limited teenage intellect, I knew I didn't need a thou shalt not verse for everything. In fact, more often than not, Scripture gives us a principle or a fundamental truth that should be practically applied to every area of our lives. Biblical principles should shape a Christian's worldview and also their lifestyle as well. For example, an illustration that I often give to people is the Bible doesn't give us a thou shalt not verse for meth or cocaine or or every 
uh, mind-altering substance. But we know from the principles of God's Word that we should abstain from things that alter our consciousness and certainly from things that are harmful to our bodies. And so we don't need a thou shalt not verse. It seems like as, as culture continually moves further and further away from Christian values and biblical principles, that this kind of mindset is more and more countercultural. It's not natural, in other words. It's not normal for us to think correctly about how to live our lives in a Christian way because the world is so far from it. Most people just aren't raised with uh, fundamental biblical values that are ingrained in, in their mindset and in their lifestyle. Historically, though, apostolics and Pentecostals, especially holiness apostolics, have contended or argued that our doctrine, our orthodoxy, comes before and informs our behavior, our orthopraxy. There's an old saying, you get what you preach. And oddly, for many years, my denomination stood against and still technically stands against hair dye, but I can't remember ever hearing a single sermon about it. I can't even remember a passing reference to it in a sermon. So it's no wonder that hair dyeing is becoming more and more common and more and more controversial, even in holiness settings. We're not preaching it, and often in our churches we do have a platform standard that asks people not to dye their hair, but even in that setting, most people don't really understand why our churches still, by and large, take this stance. So it's no wonder that hair dyeing is becoming more and more common. And it's one of the reasons that I receive countless questions about this subject, not only in the, my own church where I pastor and serve, but also through the blog and even through the podcast when people reach out. This is a subject that many people want to know more about. I was shocked when, when I first released the article at Apostolic Voice, uh, I, I wasn't really sure how many people would, would be interested in it or read it. And uh, and really, in the past, oh, I guess it's been eight months now, had over 55,000 people read that article. So that tells me there is an interest in this subject. People just want to know more. And at the very least, they want to have an understanding of the issue. And so I, I'm pleading with you now, regardless of your spiritual background or your current view, please read and listen to this subject with a prayerful and open mind to the scriptures and principles that I'm going to present to you. I hope it'll be a help to you. Don't just knee-jerk for it or against it. Really ask the Lord to help you have an understanding of the scriptures and the principles that we're going to look at here. So let's begin by looking at Scripture's favorable view of age and gray hair. And Scripture really does take a favorable view of age and of gray hair. And we'll begin in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 32. It says this in the King James, Thou shalt rise up before the hoary head. That word hoary is a good King James word for gray. Thou shalt rise up before the gray head and honor 
the face of the old man and fear thy God, I am the Lord. You know, the entire book of Leviticus is a call for God's people to be a holy, separated people because we serve a holy God. Leviticus 19.2 says that, and many other scriptures repeat that. The word holy is used 152 times in the book of Leviticus alone. And while some of Leviticus is strictly ceremonial, much of it is just as relevant to daily Christian life as the Ten Commandments. In fact, many of the instructions found in Leviticus give practical guidance for properly obeying and understanding the Ten Commandments. For example, Leviticus 19.32 encapsulates a pragmatic way to obey commands, number five and ten from the Ten Commandments, which are honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be prolonged, and thou shalt not covet. By respecting elders, we automatically honor our aged parents. So we fulfill the command, the commandment to honor our father and our mother. And, and interestingly, this fifth commandment is the only commandment that has a blessing immediately attached to it. By respecting our parents and elders, we access the blessing of a prolonged life. If we honor age, we won't be tempted to covet our neighbor's youthfulness. By not, by not longing for, for a, a, false, a false sense of youthfulness, and not longing to be youthful when we're not youthful. We honor age, and we don't covet other people's youth. Leviticus 19.32 connects the fear or the reverence. That word fear often means reverence in the King James. It connects the fear of the Lord with respect for elders. To despise eldership is to disrespect the Ancient of Days. That's Daniel 7.9. The mandate to stand when an elder approaches as a gesture of respect is still acknowledged in some modern cultures. But tragically, uh, we largely see this kind of outward respect being abandoned in American culture. Why? Because like the ancient Greeks, American culture worships youth and beauty. We really do. Hollywood and and uh, the music industry has, has uh, led America to the altar of, of beauty and youth worship. Remember, it was the ancient Greeks who popularized the mythical fountain of youth. Alexander the Great uh, is famous for searching in vain for the mysterious wellspring of eternal youthfulness, the fountain of youth. Most people spend an astronomical amount of time and money trying to conceal any outward indications of aging, hair dye, makeup, Botox, liposuction, topical serums, and on and on and on and on, all promise to conceal a person's physical flaws and convolute their age. And the billions and billions of dollars happily paid for these products testified to the extreme vanity of our, of our society. When a person intentionally conceals their age, they practice deception, reveal inward vanity, disrespect elders, and deprive younger generations of the ability to give that person the honor they deserve. In, in one of Aesop's uh, rather, rather funny fables, a man with black hair mixed with gray hair had two lovers, one old and one young. And the old one wanted him to look old uh, like her, so she pulled out all his black hair. And the young lover wanted him to look youthful like her, and she pulled out all his gray hair. And as a result, 
he was left completely bald. And there's been tons of humorous observations and morals attached to this fable, but it certainly illustrates the societal pressure to resist aging. But age is relentless, and age really cannot be denied in the end, nor should it be denied. Biblically speaking, gray hair is an honored outward symbol of wisdom and maturity. Certain realms of wisdom can only be acquired by experience and by enduring trials that strip away the immaturity and naivety of youth. Artificially changing gray hair, the sign of old age and experience, is a denial of the primary process by which wisdom is obtained. And masking God-given gray hair includes a rejection of the responsibility that is required by age and wisdom. In other words, some people never grow in wisdom, so they want their appearance to match the level of their maturity, the level of their mindset. And because they refuse to stop acting young and coveting youthfulness, they want their appearance to match how they think and behave. This is dishonesty to self. When they look in the mirror at their dyed hair, it makes them feel better. Why? Because they hide the truth from themselves. However, it actually has the reverse effect. Dyed hair typically makes its wearer look synthetic and even older than the age they're trying to deny. Consider this verse from Proverbs 16.31. It says this, The hoary head or the gray head is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. This is interesting to me because there there is a an addendum attached to the crown of glory here. The gray hair is a crown of glory. Uh, it's only a crown of glory if it is attached to a person who is who is walking in the way of righteousness. Gray hair in the eyes of God is a crown of glory. To be righteous and silver-haired is a God-given privilege. Just living long enough to acquire a single strand of gray hair is a blessing that should never be taken for granted. And the person who dyes their hair has chosen to please the eyes of men rather than the eyes of God. They disrespected their own dignity and tossed aside God's blessing. And again, this reveals a heart of vanity and pride that has spurned honor, dignity, and humility. Why are these scriptures even in the Bible? If, if nothing else, if nothing else at all, it teaches us that God likes righteous people with gray hair. Of course, it means more than just that. But even if that was all it meant, that should be enough to give us pause before changing our natural God-given hair color. Even more simplistically, changing our hair color is like telling God he didn't do a good job. So I think to continue this discussion, we need to move to the question of what else in Scripture is considered a crown of glory. We know that uh, we just read from Proverbs 16.31 that the gray head is a crown of glory, but what else is a crown of glory? And it's an important question uh, to ask in light of what we just read. So number one, Jesus Christ himself is a crown of glory for his people. That's Isaiah 28.5. Jesus Christ is a crown of glory to God. That's Isaiah 62 and 3. 
And remember, there was nothing about Jesus that was beautiful in the eyes of man. Uh, look at look at Isaiah 53 and 2. It said, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing about the outward appearance of Jesus that was beautiful or striking. In fact, it seems that it was quite the opposite. He was just ordinary in every way in his appearance. And, and perhaps even the scripture suggests that he was he was not good to look at. So what was ugly in the eyes of men was beautiful to God. It's critically important to remember that God's definition and standard of beauty is often counterintuitive to us as carnal human beings because we live in a corrupted carnal world. God-fearing people must always be wary and cautious of allowing the culture to dictate and define what beautiful is for them. Here's another verse that gives us insight into what God considers beautiful. It's Proverbs 20, 29. The glory of young men is their strength, and the beauty of old men is in the gray head. Once again, Scripture emphasizes God's standard of beauty. Age and wisdom are desirable things that should clothe us with dignity and respect. And to reject that symbol is to reject God's design for our lives. Look at 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Wow. We receive a natural crown of glory, gray hair, through the process of old age and righteousness. That's Proverbs sixteen thirty one again. And we will receive a spiritual crown of glory when Jesus comes back for his people. Righteous people with gray hair are a prophetic symbol of righteous people with their eternal crown. Let me say that again because it's so powerful. Righteous people with gray hair are a prophetic symbol of righteous people who have obtained their eternal crown of righteousness. People who dye their hair break this symbolism in their attempt to deny reality. Now, let me move in another direction for a minute here, and I, I want to talk about the modern promotion of hair dye, because really, even though hair dye has, has been with us uh, for thousands of years in one form or another, really primitively, but the mass use and the mass popularity of hair dye is a, is a fairly modern phenomenon. And the New Yorker has a fascinating article by one of my favorite authors, by the way, Malcolm Gladwell, entitled True Colors, Hair Dye, and the Hidden History of Post-War America. If you go to the blog, ryanafrench.com, and look up the article, Should Christians Dye Their Hair? There's a link to this article there and, and several others that we reference. It's a lengthy read, but it's worth your time if you care to understand the original psychological mindset behind hair dye. It's no secret that the now multi-billion dollar hair dye industry, and think about that, it's a multi-billion dollar industry, first blossomed by promoting the reimagining or reinventing of self. The, psycho the psychology of hair dye for women emerged like a rebellious monster from post-war feminism. This isn't my words. This isn't even just my opinion. This is actual historical fact, even historical 
Even secular historians have documented this thoroughly. And now, in modern times, uh, hair dye has become synonymous with vanity, sinful lifestyle changes, sexuality, sensuality, divorce, and dissatisfaction with God's original artistry. Statistics tell us that a whopping 75% of American women dye their hair, while only about 11% of American men use hair dye. Those remarkable statistics give deep insight into the hypersexualized and fantasy-induced psyche of the average American woman. On average, women feel deeply dissatisfied with their natural appearance, and this is tragic and heartbreaking. Uh, it has dangerous implications as well. The unstoppable rise of social media has only added to this ongoing problem. It would be extremely difficult to deny the drastic rise of female depression and suicide is not directly linked to the unrealistic expectations of so-called beauty our culture places on women and now young girls too. You know, it used to be that only middle-aged women and older women dyed their hair. And now, tragically, mothers take uh, little girls uh, to have their appearance changed. All of this teaches children from a young age and teenagers and certainly older women as well that they're not beautiful on their own. God didn't make them beautiful. They're not perfect. And so the pressure of culture on women is crushing, telling them that they're just not good enough unless they snip this or change that or lose this or gain that. And women simply cannot hold up under this kind of sickening, unrealistic, ungodly pressure that culture places on them. And hair dye is just one aspect of the overall pressure that women feel to cover their flaws or enhance their beauty. Of course, this is largely because men and the media have objectified women for decades and decades. Also, Many women place these unreal expectations on other women as well. Society places overwhelming pressure on women to synthesize their appearance in the name of fashion and beauty. These standards of beauty are incompatible with God's standards of holiness. And by the way, women are constantly being forced to compare themselves with standards that of beauty that are not realistic and they're not even real. Women are looking at uh, movies and magazines of other women who are photoshopped and who are synthetic and who have had all kinds of body modifications. And they're trying to hold themselves to that standard of beauty. Men hold women to these unrealistic, ridiculous standards of beauty. And the psychological pressure this places on women is astronomical. And it is wreaking havoc on the psyche of especially Western American women, but women all over the world. Look at, look at what the Bible says in Psalm 96 and 9. It says, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The Bible teaches us and God tells us that, that holiness, righteousness, godliness is the only true form of beauty. Holiness is beautiful. God created every individual with unique 
beauty. To reject holiness and God's artistry is an insult to God. And furthermore, men who do not view godly women as beautiful are carnal and corrupted by the cheap enticements of the world. Women who despise holiness are held captive by crushing societal peer pressure and or their own inward vanity. It's important to understand the the duality of motives, the duplicity of motives for synthesizing or changing appearance. Some women synthesize their appearance to fit in. That's peer pressure. While other women synthesize their appearance to stand out. That's vanity. Both motives are highly problematic, ungodly, and unbiblical for different reasons. To be sure, men struggle in these areas as well. However, in the context of hair dye and and other body modifications, men feel less pressure and don't battle these temptations nearly as often as women do because society just doesn't place the same unrealistic expectations on men. Men have not been hypersexualized in the way that women have because uh, it's typically men who do the objectifying. And so for men and women, God desires us to be free from the shackles, and they really are shackles, the bondage of envy, pride, vanity, objectification, insecurity, shame, and worldly expectations. Look at Psalm 139, 14. It says this, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. First Peter 1 and 14 through 16 in the English Standard Version says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So this program is basically unofficially fueled by Coke Zero and Espresso. Uh, We don't have big financial supporters. Apostolic Pentecostal programming like this is never going to receive support from major corporations. We're not going to have money flowing into it like uh, the big podcasts and big radio programs uh, that people typically listen to. And so we are completely dependent on your generosity. And so you can go to anchor.fm forward slash apostolic voice forward slash support. And you can sign up to give as little as 99 cents a month. Uh, that's about $12 a year. You can give $4.99 a month. That's the middle tier or as much as $9.99 per month. And it just helps us keep everything going. It also supports the blog as well. Uh, no one's looking to make money, but it does help us to upgrade uh, the production value of this program. We want to do the best that we possibly can. And also, uh, if you're not able to do that, please consider giving this podcast five stars on iTunes and a quick review as well. That pushes us up in the algorithms where people know we exist and they find us in search engines. And whatever format you listen to, just give us a a little shout out. Perhaps give us a share on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. That just helps get the word out that we exist. And I do appreciate it. Thank you for listening. So I'd like to switch over to some practical 
objections to hair dye. Hair dyeing is a chemical process. Almost all hair dye requires bleaching before color is added. Typically, ammonia is used even in modern hair dyes, uh, and it causes terrible, sometimes irreparable damage to hair follicles. Ironically, many people who avoid chemicals in every other area of life, their soap, their cleaning supplies, infuse their hair every day, monthly, weekly, with harsh chemicals. So now, because of vanity and or peer pressure, many people have violated another area of holiness by harming their hair, especially women. The significance of hair as a spiritual covering, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 through 16, is, uh, tells us, shows us that for men and women, hair is, is very important to God, what we do with our hair. Hair for a woman is their glory, it's their covering, and damaging the hair, which is tremendously spiritually important to God, demonstrates a callousness towards God's natural order. And so someone who, who values that spiritual principle, really that spiritual command, would never risk damaging something so, so spiritually precious unless, one, they don't have a true revelation of the spiritual significance of hair, or two, they're blinded by vanity or worldly pressure and don't care about things that matter to God. Furthermore, studies are, are proving more and more that hair dye is directly linked to cancer, especially among women, which makes sense because women use hair dye far more exclusively than men do. We've already discussed the percentage of men and women. Most effective hair dyes contain carcinogens, which are known to be cancer-causing. This isn't a secret. In fact, uh, even very mainstream news organizations have, have reported the direct link that has scientifically been proven between breast cancer and other types of cancer that uh, are linked specifically to the use of hair dye. Increasingly, health experts and doctors are trying to steer women clear of hair dye. Obviously, they're not having much success, but, but the research is in. Notably, most doctors encourage pregnant women to stop the use of hair dye during their pregnancy because they've found that it can actually be harmful to the baby. So the dangers of long-term hair dye use are known, but mostly and sadly ignored by a culture that is obsessed with outward vanity. Now let's look at the biblical view of vanity, because that word, uh, which is kind of a, a vague word that, that Christians throw around a lot, and we don't always know exactly what we mean by the word vanity, or if we do know what we mean we don't necessarily know what the Bible says about vanity. So, so let's look at that for, for just a moment. Biblically, vanity has a, a wide spectrum of meaning that can be used differently in, in different situations. But if you boil it down to a nutshell, the Bible gives lots of instructions on how Christians should think about themselves inwardly. And that inward transformation will always, and I'm going to say that again, inward transformation will always be outwardly visible. Our clothing, our body language, our words, 
our conversations, our actions, our ethics, our morals, our integrity, our social interaction, all of those things are changed and transformed by the way we view ourselves inwardly, the way we think inwardly. For example, uh, uh, many Christians try to ignore this when it comes to their, uh, their clothing and the way they treat their bodies outwardly. However, we all know instinctively that um, if you have inward integrity, that integrity is going to manifest itself outwardly. I can't, uh, I can't say that I am against lying and be a liar. That would, if I'm a liar, then inwardly I'm not thinking correctly. It's the same with outward holiness. You can't say that I'm inwardly holy, but it has no bearing on the way I dress, the way I, uh, the way I conduct myself, the way I carry myself. All of these things all of these outward manifestations, we could say, outward attributes of holiness come from within. So that's why uh, people who believe in holiness and often say that holiness is both inward and outward. It begins on the inside and it begins to manifest itself on the outside. Let's look at Proverbs 31 and 30. It says this, favor is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Okay, so Proverbs 31 famously gives the biblical template, we could say, of a virtuous, godly woman. In this God-ordained description of ideal femininity, the focus is not on outward vanities or trappings. Instead, the emphasis is placed on the condition of her heart and her relationship with God. Here, vanity means, in this passage, empty pleasure, vain pursuit, idle show, unsubstantial activity. So vanity is always ostentatious, ostentatious, it's arrogant, it's outward showiness. Vanity is the inflation of ego, it's empty pride inspired by conceit and manifested by the flaunting of personal decorations. Vanity is haughty, gaudy, and it relishes in drawing attention to self. Let me take you to 2 Peter 2.18. It says this, talking about um, false prophets, false preachers, and teachers. Peter said this, For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, there's that word again, they allure or entice people through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. So in the middle of this long rebuke in Second Peter chapter 2, and this description of false prophets, preachers, and teachers, he mentions their great swelling words of vanity. In other words, false prophets use vain words or vain thinking to appeal to people's baser instincts of carnal vanity. Vain words appeal to our lustful and vain sinful natures. This kind of preaching and false thinking leads people back into the captivity of sin. So one of the ways you can always tell a false prophet or a false preacher is their ministry, their so-called ministry, instead of pulling people away from the brink of danger, away from the gray areas away from sinfulness and carnality. Vain preachers use vanity 
to draw people back into the slavery of sin. Let me give you an Old Testament example of this from 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 15. It says this, And they rejected his statutes, meaning God's statutes, and his covenant that he made with their fathers, and his testimonies, which he testified against them. And they followed what? Here's the word again. They followed vanity. And because they followed vanity, they became vain and went after the heathen, or they imitated the heathens that were round about them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. The Bible chronicles, really the vast majority of the Old Testament is the chronicling of the frequent backsliding and revival, the backsliding and restoration of God's people, the Israelites. And here in this text from 2 Kings, the Israelites followed empty, vain things, and they became empty and vain. Empty vanity lays the groundwork for deeper and deeper sins. As the Israelites imitated the heathens around them, they became more and more debauched in their thinking. And as they became debauched in their thinking, their actions became more heathen-like. All of this started because they ignored the warnings of their elders and ancestors. Vain thinking always leads to sin and to sorrow. I think this passage from 2 Kings parallels perfectly the problems that we're facing in our modern Christian culture, where Christians are pressured into looking at the heathens around them, Hollywood, fashion industry, and even carnal Christians and false prophets and false preachers. And as they imitate this, their thinking becomes more and more carnal. And as they think in ways that are heathen-like, their actions become less and less godly until eventually they get to the place where they wouldn't recognize godliness if it slapped them on the back of the head. This is a dangerous place for us to be, and we should really consider it. And we should never discount the warnings of our elders and our ancestors and and godly men and women who've paved the apostolic uh, doctrines and ways of thinking. We should never discount those things casually. We should always listen to those things carefully and make sure that our thinking is not being influenced by something that is empty and vain rather than something that is godly and wise. Now let's look at Philippians Philippians chapter 2 verses verse 3. It says this, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. That word vainglory would probably best be translated as empty or vain conceit. And I believe hair dye falls into the category of empty conceit. Let's look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 24 through 26. It says this, And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. So Galatians chapter 5 lists the fruit of the Spirit, which includes meekness, another word that's very important for inward and outward holiness, a word we don't have time to to get too deep into. However, I, I do believe that hair dye is a direct contradiction to the concept of being meek in our in our not only our inward self, but in our outward self. And spirit-filled believers are mandated. We are we are commanded to crucify 
the affections and lusts of the flesh. We're to walk in the spirit rather than to walk in the desires of the flesh. Spirit-led Christians do not desire vainglory, meaning they aren't conceited. And because they aren't conceited, they aren't envious of one another. By avoiding vanity, Christians keep themselves from the spirit of envy, and they also don't provoke others to envy them either. Now, let me give you a few last biblical instructions concerning outward adornment, and we'll begin with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. This is the amplified version. I don't always like the amplified version, but sometimes it's helpful because it will elaborate on words that uh, are are a little difficult. But uh, let's look at it here. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves modestly and appropriately and discreetly in proper clothing. Now Paul moves, and it, you'll see this in Peter and here in, in Paul's writing, that Paul will, will often uh, lump discussions of hair with discussions of outward clothing and adornment. So he just moves right into it. He says, not with elaborately braided hair and gold or pearls, or expensive clothes, but instead adorned by good deeds, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. Now, it's important to understand that when Paul talks about braided hair, he doesn't mean just braiding hair the way we think of it in a modern context. This was literally uh, in reference to the heathen practice of uh, taking hair and putting strands of gold through it or encrusting it in pearls or silver. And also, many theologians, not all, but many, have connected this, this wording to the idea of women who also used a primitive form of hair dye to decorate their hair. And so Paul forbids this. So here in, in Paul's first letter to Timothy, he's giving all these instructions for a godly woman's outward appearance. And, uh, and he says that there are two relevant focuses for our discussion here. Number one, discreet adornment and the forbidding of hair decorations on a woman's hair, a woman's glory, is forbidden. These principles should be taken into consideration when considering whether or not hair dye is an appropriate option in God's eyes. Now let's look at 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4. This is the ESV. Do not let your adorning be external or outward, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So here, Peter is echoing Paul's apostolic commands regarding a godly woman's adorning. Now, if nothing else, these passages remind us that apostolic women of faith should allow their beauty to radiate from within. Synthetic, vain, ostentatious outward attempts to change God-given beauty originates from a heathen, godless dissatisfaction with the original creator's design. True beauty comes from a godly spirit. Every attempt to cover the master strokes of our great creator results in a shallowness that ultimately creates an inward, vain emptiness. So in a nutshell, Christians should refrain from dyeing their hair because it violates several scriptural principles. Number one, hair dye is a rejection of God's chosen symbol of righteousness, wisdom, dignity, and honor. Hair dye is an affront to God's artistry and a rejection of His design. Hair dye endangers the health 
of a woman's hair, her spiritual covering. Hair dye may very well endanger an individual's physical health. And hair dye is absolutely rooted in a history of rebellion, sexuality, sensuality, and carnality. Hair dye is intrinsically vain. And hair dye is not consistent with the godly outward adornment mandated in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, and 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. Let me read the words of Jesus here from Matthew 5, 36. He said this, Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. Now, obviously, this verse isn't dealing with the issue of dyeing the hair, but it is a startling revelation of the absence of hair dye in Jewish culture. I think it's highly unlikely that Jesus would have said this if it was common practice for women to dye their hair black, or men for that matter. It seems consistent with Scripture that the apostles and prophets of old would firmly oppose the ostentatious synthetic use of hair dye. And as modern apostolics, I believe we should lovingly oppose it as well. I hope you'll pray about this this important topic and really allow the Lord to speak to you. Focusing today on one of G.K. Chesterton's finest poems called The Nativity. A little bit of a Christmas theme here as he as he uh, writes about the birth of baby Jesus and speaks of Mary. At the very beginning, he refers to Mary's hair as her glory, which is why I'm featuring it today. I hope you enjoy it. The Nativity by G.K. Chesterton. The thatch on the roof was as golden, though dusty the straw was and old. The wind had a pale of his trumpets, though blowing and barren and cold. The mother's hair was a glory, though loosened and torn, for under the eaves in the gloaming a child was born. Have a myriad children been quickened? Have a myriad children grown old, grown gross and unloved and embittered, grown cunning and savage and cold? God abides in a terrible patience, unangered, unworn. And again for the child that was squandered, a child is born. What know we of eons behind us, dim dynasties lost long ago, huge empires like dreams unremembered, huge cities for ages laid low, this at least, that with blight and with blessing, with flower and thorn, love was there, and his cry was among them, a child is born. Though the darkness be noisy with systems, dark fancies that fret and disprove, still the plumes stir around us, above us, the wings of the shadow of love. O princes and priests, have ye seen it? Grow pale through your scorn. Huge dawns sleep before us, deep changes, a child is born. And the rafters of toil still are gilded with the dawn of the stars of the heart, and the wise men draw near in the twilight who are weary of learning and art. And the face of the tyrant is darkened, his spirit is torn, for a new king is enthroned, yea, the sternest, a child is born. And the mother still joys for the whispered, first stir of unspeakable things, still feels that high moment unfurling, red glory of Gabriel's wings. Still the babe of an hour is a master, whom angels adorn, Emmanuel, prophet anointed, A child is born. And thou that art still in thy cradle, the sun being crowned for thy brow, 
Make answer our flesh, make answer. Say, whence art thou come? Who art thou? Art thou come back on earth for our teaching, to train or to warn? Hush, how may we know, knowing only a child is born? told you we had a double header today and this poem is called every hair by number by deborah ann if god calls each star by their name would he not for his children do the very same if god feeds the birds on the fly would he not for his children their daily needs supply if god considers all the lilies of the field would he not for his children be their protective shield if god knows when a sparrow's about to fall Would he not for his children hear them when they call? If God keeps each creature in his sight, would he not for his children lead them with his light? If God counts every hair by number, then we as his children, these questions needn't ponder. Luke 12, 7. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. For not therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. (laughs) 